Well, good morning. I'm, uh, I'm not feeling well, but it is great to be here. And uh, I'm going to make a beeline after the service just because uh, I'm going to want to shake your hand and you're not going to want to shake mine. So I will um, just wish you a, a wonderful, uh, it's great to see you. I hope you have a great time fellowship after the service. But uh, I'm going to probably go home and hit the couch. Um, one thing I'd like to do before we uh, get started here, um, this is the last Sunday that uh, we have some folks who are um, worshiping at Holy Trinity next Sunday, January 4. They're going to begin services Sunday morning and evening. And so this is the last Sunday that uh, Bill and Rebecca Medota Ward will be with us. And um, Bill and Paige Camps, uh, Dennis Vierink, I believe, is uh, worshiping there. And um, Jeremy and Sarah uh, Apol. There might be others that I'm missing, but um, we've invited folks to uh, to participate in that work. Uh, it's, it's Associate Reformed Presbyterian work, sister denomination of the OPC. I believe the oldest Presbyterian church in America, and um, they're going to be beginning two services. Just want to, uh, if we could just take a moment to pray for our brothers and sisters as this is their last Sunday here with us, and ask them the Lord's richest blessing as they start that new work. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you that uh, you are a, a missionary God, and I thank you, Lord, that throughout its history, the church has been called to plant churches, a new outpost of gospel proclamation and new communities where the gospel is believed and where people live under its promises and, and uh, Lord, uh, grow in its grace. Uh, Father, we pray for Holy Trinity Church, and thank you f- for this new ministry in downtown Grand Rapids. Father, pray for those uh, from Harvest who will be joining that work, participating in that ministry. We thank you, Lord, for their uh, willingness to leave what is comfortable, uh, what is a a blessing, and to take on this new hard uh, labor of planting a church. Uh, We thank you, Lord, in this past year, you've given us the opportunity to to see New City uh, get started and and then to participate in a a slightly different way in, in Holy Trinity. But Lord, we pray for your hand upon it. Unless you build the house, those who build uh, labor in vain. Uh, But Lord, thank you that when we labor for the cause of Christ, uh, we never do it in vain. And so we pray that uh, you bless these families as they now take up this work. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn your Bible to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is we're continuing our series in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Just a reminder as well, next week, January 4, is Rosemary's 90th birthday. So there's a card out back. If you haven't signed that yet, please do that, and we'll get that to Rosemary uh, next uh, week, Lord willing. And we'll have some special time of fellowship there as well. Luke chapter 2, this morning we're looking at an old man and a baby. Going to begin reading to verse 22 and read through verse 35. Luke 2, beginning to verse 22. Let's give our attention this morning to God's word. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that is Joseph and Mary, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what, it is sa- what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. 
and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we need you to help us um, understand. We need you to help us to see the goodness of your grace, the precious gift of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word and the spirit today so that we might understand the things that are of God. And so, Father, we look forward then with expectation to hearing from you, to seeing your love for us in Jesus, and to understanding our life in this context of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, our, our story this morning is a, it's a wonderful story of an old man who found what he was looking for. Uh, maybe, um, maybe you're looking for something, and boys and girls, you were looking for Christmas to come, weren't you? And it was a big, big moment when, you, uh, when that moment finally arrived, and you got to open your presents, and I hope you got everything you wished for. Well, probably everything you wished for. Um, your mom and dad know best, but here's an old man who had been looking for a long, long time. He'd been waiting for something, and, and on this this occasion, he found, finally found, what he was looking for, what he was waiting for. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us how old Simeon was, but it suggests that he was an old man as he takes the baby and says, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have finally seen your salvation. Tradition says he was over 100 years old. Now, that's tradition, but it is probably rooted in some truth. But what Luke does tell us is that there was a wonderful day when, after thousands of days of waiting, Simeon was finally uh, able to receive his heart's desires as he held the Messiah of God in his arms. Think of what a precious blessing that was to that old man. He knew that he was holding the existential evidence of God's glorious faithfulness to all the promises he'd made in the Old Testament. Here was proof that God was faithful. And he knew that he was holding the evidence of God's mighty, saving love for a world that was ruined and bound by sin. This past uh, Friday morning, I was just, it was such a beautiful morning, and um, so I was just, got my coffee and was taking a little drive and ended up um, driving past the cemetery on 76. And um, I pulled in. I, I didn't meant to, but cemeteries are good places for me. I, they're uh, just places for clarity. Um, driving slowly through that cemetery, just reminding myself of the inevitability of death. The time, like an ever-rolling stream, really does bear all its sons away. Um, it struck me 
the reality of tragic deaths. If you drive through a cemetery, my, my mind sort of, uh, my eye is attracted to the, the tragedies there. The, the, the young mother, uh, her name was Libby. She, she died in 1894. She was 25. Her mother died that same year, 1894, buried just uh, next to her. Father lived, outlived them both for 20 years. And there was a tombstone there to a soldier who was killed in World War I in the Argonne Forest in 1918, a 19-year-old boy who never came home. And I was struck by the approaching reality of my own death. I saw namestones of men that I knew. Uh, Bud Demick is buried there. Jim Dreischer and I went to talk to Bud a couple times when we were looking for property. Uh, Bud lived in a place up on 64th Street, and now he is in a grave. Uh, Dale Grotenheis, a man I knew when I was at Dort College, and many of you knew. Some of you sang in his choirs. Dale Grotenheis is buried there. I see, a cemetery is a, is a good place to be reminded that we need a great deliverance, that something is fundamentally wrong. Every cemetery tells the tale of our universal human predicament, that things are not the way they ought to be. And every tomb is a silent witness to our desperate need for help. It struck me that, every, that a graveyard is one of God's most persistent signs in the world, that salvation is needed, that mankind is is lost without it. You know, every, every decaying body in that, in that field is powerless, helpless, lost beyond all hope unless God miraculously intervenes. No one is going to claw their way out of that tomb. God must miraculously intervene. And, and the glorious news of Christmas is that God has done exactly that. In the birth of Mary's baby boy, God has invaded this world of death with a seed of life, God has begun a work that will culminate in the death of death in the cross of Christ and lead one day to the overthrow of cemeteries. It just struck me that, you know, Christians can go into a cemetery and we declare the victory of Jesus there, that cemeteries are overthrown in Christ. Simeon was enabled to see the miracle. He was able to see by the Holy Spirit God's greater sign than that of cemeteries, a sign of God's love for sinners, God's a salvation for a world ruined by sin and in bondage to death. And so this morning, let's just look at the two things, a waiting man and the promised Savior. A waiting man, Luke tells us that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was a man who was aware of a great spiritual need. If you were living in Jerusalem, which is where he was living, meant that as a godly man, you were living in this great tension between what Jerusalem was supposed to be and what Jerusalem actually was. Jerusalem was supposed to be a great city, God's own city, a city set on a hill, a light to the nations, the praise of all the earth. That's what it was supposed to be. And it had the some, of the, some of the signs were there. The temple was there. The holy artifacts were there. Holy worship was still there. And so for a devout Jew, uh, Jerusalem really was the best place to live. But for a devout Jew, it was also a bitter place to live. Because even though the temple was there, so much of the, of the worship was just routine and dead and there was so much ungodliness, and, and, and Jerusalem was living under bondage to Roman rule. It, it was not the way it was supposed to be. We uh, sort of look, 
with, uh, with, with shock at what happened to Detroit in 50 years economically, a, a growing, bustling, um, uh, economically vibrant city now reduced uh, to bankruptcy. Well, that had happened to Jerusalem spiritually, and people would look at Jerusalem and, and remember the glory of the past and shake their heads and wonder what had happened. So as Simeon is a devout and godly man living in Jerusalem, he is aware of great spiritual need. Only God can fix the mess that Jerusalem was in, the mess that the world was in. He was aware of it. His waiting had that awareness. His waiting, secondly, was anchored to a promise. He was not uh, just bemoaning the state of affairs, not just trying to make the best of it. Simeon was waiting because he had a promise that had been given to him by God in Isaiah. Isaiah is full of such promises. Let me give you one of the prominent ones. You really need to turn with me to Isaiah 57. If you have your Bible, I want you to see that uh, he was looking for the consolation of Israel because that's exactly what God had promised. God had promised comfort for Israel. God had promised healing for Israel. Isaiah 57, if, if you would turn to that with me. This is what would be read in the synagogues and what would be read in the temple. Um, Simeon would have been a, a, a familiar with these words. Isaiah 57, beginning at verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the, the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry, speaking of Israel. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his, and his mourners, creating the fruit of the, of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. That was the promise God had made through the prophet Isaiah over 700 years ago. You see, as Simeon looked at the current uh, status of things, as he looked at the way things were, he realized that, that Israel was here on, for, for, on a purpose or for a reason. Israel was here because they'd sinned. And God, in his displeasure, because he's a holy God, God had sort of removed Israel from his, the, the presence of his favor. But even though Israel had sinned so grievously and was continuing to sin, God was not willing to abandon them. That's the promise of Isaiah 57. I will restore him. I will restore comfort to him. I will heal him. And that's what Simeon is waiting for. God had made a promise, and Simeon knew that not a single promise of God ever falls to the ground unfulfilled. If God had promised to heal Israel, Israel was going to be healed. And so he waited. And apparently he waited in community. We know of another woman here whose name is Anna. 
And there were others, verse 38, who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. There was a community of folks in, in Jerusalem, probably gathered together to pray, maybe to fast, encouraging each other with the assurance that God would not forget His promise. And they're waiting. They have this expectation. Uh, Brian Bill says Luke uses a Greek word of anticipation. That means literally they were alert to his appearance and ready to welcome him. Friends, that's exactly how the church should be in the world today. With this sort of awareness of the need, we, we see the world as it is. We know what's going on. We know why things happen. Not, not the, the, the details, but we know the big story. That this world is under a curse because of sin, because it's rebelled against God. But we also know that God has made a promise. And we're expecting God's power. We're expecting God's grace. We're expecting God's deliverance. We, we expect to be able to speak into the circumstances that we see with the truth of the gospel and see God do a work that we can't do ourselves. God do the miraculous. The church should be um, not just making peace with the brokenness around us, but we see it for what it is, God's judgment, and yet God's last word is not judgment, but grace. And so we speak the gospel to a lost world, expecting to see God use that word in our lives and in the lives of others around us. We ought to be people on our tiptoes because God's made a promise. And then his waiting, thirdly, is assured by revelation. So Simeon has his, his waiting is anchored in a promise, but assured by revelation, verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Don't know when that happened in Simeon's life, but the Bible tells us that the Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he, is, he saw with his own eyes the Messiah. Helps explain his waiting, his eager anticipation. He had, by word and spirit, the conviction of these things. God was going to respond to the brokenness of this world. God was going to come. The Messiah was coming in his lifetime. And that's how he spent his days and years, waiting then with that eager anticipation. Can you, can you just imagine? Put yourself in Simeon's shoes. You're a godly man. You're a devout man. You know the law of God, the word of God. You know the commands of God. You know uh, how Israel has failed and is failing. You know the prophets. But you have the word of God to guide you. You have the promise of the Holy Spirit to, to assure you. And so with eyes of faith, you see, he's able to see through the mess. He's able to see through all the troubles and to lay hold of God's great promise God's answer for everything that's wrong with Jerusalem and all that's wrong with the world, a person, a Messiah. What a way to live, huh? What a way to wake up every morning. I, can't, I can only imagine Simeon every morning thinking maybe this is the day. Maybe this is the day when the salvation of God comes. And then one day it was. One day the Spirit, we're told, led Simeon into the temple and there his waiting was ended, and so his waiting was answered by divine appointment. Look at verses 27 and 28. When he came in the Spirit into the temple, 
When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. When this old man saw the baby, he burst into song. That's what people do when they see the grace and love and kindness and faithfulness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. When you see, friends, all that God is for you in Christ, when you are able to embrace it, to take that truth into your arms and and close to your heart, you can't help but rejoice. You can't help but be happy to be at peace. And Simeon sings then a song about this promised Savior. And that's really the point of the text. Remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus to assure him of the things that he's heard, the things concerning Jesus Christ. And so the song is about the Savior. Mary and Joseph were bringing Jesus into the temple. He was 40 days old. Uh, That was the, uh, according to the law, Mary had to come as she had given birth and and, uh, a woman was considered uh, unclean and had to be uh, ritually cleansed at 40 days after the birth. So Mary was coming for that purpose, but they were also coming to redeem their firstborn son. Way back, if you remember your your, uh, Old Testament, uh, in Exodus 13, remember when God brought Israel out of Egypt and and the, the Passover where the firstborn children, the firstborn male child of every Egyptian household, where there was no blood, that firstborn male child was put to death by the angel. Well, when God did that, he also laid claim to every Israelite male firstborn child. Not even just the children, but also the firstborn of the animals. So that God, was, God said that to every Jewish family from now on, their firstborn male child had to be bought back. God laid claim to their firstborn and it, because what God wanted to communicate is that when he redeems, he owns. He redeemed Israel. That meant that they belonged to him. They were not their own. Their future, their firstborn belonged to God. And so they would, parents would have to take money to the temple, to the priest, and buy back their firstborn son. Interestingly, Jesus here, the Redeemer, comes under the law, the Redeemer has to be redeemed because he places himself with us under the law of God. Well, Simeon sees Mary and Joseph come. He sees the baby. The Holy Spirit communicates to him. Somehow he knows. Everyone else just saw a a young couple come with a little baby. That's all they saw. Simeon sees salvation. Right with the eyes of faith, he sees salvation. The greatest thing the world has ever seen. The Messiah of God. And he takes him in his arms and sings this song where he points out what Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. David Murray in a sermon on this text helpfully pointed out, and I'm just going to use his outline here, that the, the, the son here, the baby, has come to save and to separate and to suffer. And that's what we'll be looking at. The baby came to save, to separate, and to suffer. Simeon rejoices, my eyes have seen your salvation. I want you to think of the faith behind that statement. 
When's the last time you looked at a little baby and said, there's my salvation? I don't think you've ever said that. I hope you've never said that. Simeon looked at this little baby, 40 days old, and said, this is my deliverance. This is my only hope in life and death. This is my forgiveness of all my sin. This is my peace with God. This is my righteousness. This is the salvation of God. This is God's plan to make everything new. Everything new. That's what he believed. This is not just Simeon's salvation. This is for all the peoples, right, that you've prepared in the presence of all the peoples. This is cosmic redemption. This is God making everything new, turning back the curse, delivering man from sin. This baby would be the light of the world, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Murray in his, in his sermon mentioned that the Bible speaks of four different, um, four different ways when it talks about darkness. So sometimes it's speaking of intellectual darkness. So if you think about Romans chapter 1, that the senseless mind, the, the, the men's senseless minds were darkened. They loved the lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so God, in response, darkens their mind, darkens their intellect, so that the unspiritual man cannot understand the things of God. They're, they're darkness to him. Can't get it. It's foolishness. Intellectual darkness. And then the Bible talks about emotional darkness. If you read the Psalms, thinking of Psalm 88 particularly, where the writer is speaking of the darkness of despair as he senses that he's, he's, he's under the, the discipline of God and, and being persecuted by men. There is, the Bible talks about moral darkness. The people don't have a light. They can't see what's true. They can't see what's good. They can't desire what's beautiful. And so, and so they live in this moral blackness, enslaved to sin. And at the core of it all is, is spiritual darkness. Jesus said, if the eye within you is dark, how great is the darkness? If you're blind spiritually, you don't know God, well, how great is the darkness? And, and friends, that's the condition of the world. And that's the condition, right, we all have to recognize that's what we need to be delivered from. Do you, do you have any sense of the darkness? Intellectual, moral, emotional, spiritual darkness, do you know what that means? Have you experienced that in your own life? The darkness of real sin, crimes against God, the darkness of depression and despair, often because of our sin, the darkness of just a dead heart, you know you ought to be responding in joy. You see other people responding in faith. You see other people encouraged and filled with hope and, and surrounded in peace, and you just know it's not you. You're just, there's a spiritual deadness, a darkness. Maybe you're under the, the conviction of sin, the, the, this, this sense of being under the wrath of God. Well, friend, if that's you this morning, do you understand that Christmas is a, God is a message for you. Your light has come, right? Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That in Jesus Christ, you see, there is an answer to all the darkness in the world and all the darkness in your own heart. Jesus came exactly to be a light and to be a light for you and for me. 
to free us from intellectual and emotional and moral and spiritual darkness and to bring us into the kingdom of life and light. Don't you love the light? One of the hard things about winter in, in Michigan is, is just we don't get a lot of sunshine. Uh, on Friday, wasn't it amazing just to, to see the sun? Oh, beautiful. Well, for, that's the gospel, friends, right? That every time we look to Jesus, we see the sunlight. We see truth and beauty and grace pouring down from God upon our life. Embrace it. Live in it. Jesus Christ came to save But this light brings with it the truth of separation. Simeon turns to Mary and says to her this hard thing. Behold, this child is appointed for the the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. That Christ, he says, is going to be a stone of offense. He's going to be a sign in the world that's opposed. This is taken right out of Isaiah chapter 8, 14. He will be a, become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. That's what Isaiah had said. Now, that's, that's, that's just the most striking thing. How could this glorious child, this gift of God, God himself, come to save the world? How could that be offensive? Why would men be offended at a Savior? Yet we know that's exactly what happened. He was despised and rejected of men. He came to his own, and his own received him not. This just just should be stunning to us. What is wrong with us, you see? That, That the Savior of the world, the one that was promised all through the ages, the one who actually can fix things, that he should come for love's sake alone. And we would say we don't want him. We don't need him. We don't like him. We're offended by him. I was reading an article just this week of someone who does open-air preaching. He was just talking about this. Why are people so offended by Jesus? He says, when we do open-air preaching, we frequently run into hecklers who encourage us to stop, argue with us, or try to distract us. They don't want to hear the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The heckling comes from men and women, young and old alike. Some of the most vicious heckling come from professing Christians. Why does it make people so mad to hear the name of Jesus? This name is the sweetest name on earth. Why on earth is it so offensive? And the answer, of course, is because Jesus is light. And sinners love darkness. Jesus said that in John 3.20, that everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's the problem. See, unregenerate people love their sin. They, they, in their pride, they don't want to confess sin. In their lust, they don't want to turn from sin. That, that's, that's the bondage. That's exactly the nature of the bondage. That, that by nature, people hate the light. What a, what a tragic reality. We live in, uh, I think, oftentimes in this naive ignorance that if people would just see what's good for them, they'll do what's good for them. No, they won't. No, they won't. The bondage to sin means you can have the good staring you right in the face, but because you love what is evil, you will pursue what is evil unless someone helps you, unless someone delivers you. Isn't that the experience of your own life? You've sinned knowing what you were doing was wrong. It wasn't that you didn't know the truth, that you were just ignorant. You knew what was right. You knew it was good, but you loved what was not good. 
Well, that's the, that's, that's the nature, you see, of what it, means, that's what it means to be a sinner, what it means to be caught in sin. But for praise God, Jesus Christ has come to deliver us from that. He's going to be a sign that is opposed. What is the sign of Jesus? You know, boys and girls, when you see signs uh, along the road, I mean, they're there to say things to you, right? I was asking uh, uh, my little grandson, Marcus. Uh, he was explaining the, the, the lights, the red light. And red light means, uh, what's that mean? It means stop. And what does a green light mean? It means go. What does yellow mean? Now, hold on a second. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> See, signs mean something. Uh, what's, what does Jesus mean? What are we supposed to read in Jesus? Because some people read moral teacher. Some people, some people read, uh, this, is, this is what the good life ought to look like. This is how you ought to live. Uh, some uh, people read Jesus and, and just see this uh, philosopher, like a, sort of like a Gandhi, Jesus, you see, if you really read the sign, Jesus is the evidence that God so loved the world. Jesus is the evidence, right? This is how the love of God is made manifest among us. That is what is screaming and beaming from this sign, that God loved you. God was not willing to leave you in your death, to leave you in your darkness. God loved this lost, broken, ruined, rebellious world. He loved it so much he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the sign. But it's a sign that's opposed. When Paul went to, to one of the, his cities, he went to meet with the Jewish leaders and they told him, Acts 28, 22, we want to hear from you what your views are for, with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Everybody, everybody in Paul's day was speaking against Christianity. The Jews hated it. The pagans hated it. Everybody hated this Christ. Even in Jesus' own ministry, people would say that he had a demon. It's a demonic sign. People said it was blasphemous. It was foolish. We don't want it. Give us Barabbas. That's what they said. Caesar's our king. We don't want this one. And it's the same today. People oppose this sign. You can go online and find all sorts of articles, books, claiming to debunk Christianity as being immoral, Christianity as being evil, false. I read an article again just this past week, uh, claiming to point out how immoral Christianity was. You know what his basic argument? His basic argument is that Christianity is immoral because the God of Christians is willing to forgive horrific criminals like rapists and serial killers. Where's the justice in that, right? Rapists and serial killers ought to go to hell forever. And any God that would rescue them from their deserved fate, if there is a hell, but that's what would be preferred, any God that would intervene to rescue them from that is immoral. Well, he has a point in one sense, right? Jeffrey Dahmer, he just gets to live this horrific life of sin, wickedness, crime, and then he says, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and goes to heaven? Where's the justice in that? He mentioned in the article, 
These people say that if Hitler would have confessed his sin and asked uh, for, for forgiveness and bowed to Jesus at the end of his life, Hitler would have been in heaven. Praise God. Because <laughs> there's a little Hitler running loose in here. Now, where's the justice in that? Well, we know where the justice is, don't we? The justice is in that God made him to be sin who had no sin so that in him we might become, all of us Hitlers and Jeffrey Dahmers can become the righteousness of God. But friends, the offense of the gospel so often is exactly the grace of the gospel, the scandal of the grace of God, that God is willing to forgive great sinners like us because it requires you to admit the truth about yourself. It requires you to admit you cannot possibly deliver or save yourself or make yourself right. And it forces you to admit the truth that you are so wicked, it took the very Son of God to be sacrificed on a cross for you. Scandalous, but oh, praise God, it's true. But that's the great divide. You can divide humanity in many ways, and people do, by race, by age, by gender, by political ideology, by religious affiliation, by economic class. But friends, God has two categories, those who are in Christ and those who are not, those who receive him as Savior and Lord and those who oppose him. Two categories, that's it. In the entire human race, the great question of human history, the great issue of eternity is what have you done with Jesus Christ? He's come to separate. In fact, Luke talks in a place about Jesus separating families, fathers and, and, and children and, and spouses. Because you're either with him or against him. What have you done with Jesus? Have you trusted in him? So he will save, he will separate, and he will suffer. And we'll wrap up. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simon prophesied the suffering of the son as he spoke of the suffering of Mary. She would see that Jesus was despised and rejected. She would see the crowds turn on him. She would see him being crucified. And as his body was pierced with a spear, her soul would be pierced with a sword. I've read this little poem before, but it captures it well. Speaking of Mary at the cross, at the cross, her station keeping, stood the mournful mother weeping, close to Jesus to the last. Through her heart, his sorrow sharing, all his bitter anguish bearing, now at length the sword had passed. This son would, would save through suffering. His body it was prepared to be a sacrifice for sinners by God himself. He would deliver people by dying in their place. That's the gospel truth. So how do, we, how do we take a text like this and apply it? Just two quick things. One is the gospel call. See, Luke's point here is to show who Jesus is and what he came to do and who he came to do it for. He came to, do, he came to die for sinners. He came to reconcile man to God. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I know you've heard that a thousand times. My question for you is, do you believe it? Is that, is that what you're waiting for? Is that what you're looking for? Is that what you're trusting in? Is, is, Jesus, is Jesus the one that, that you love? I um, don't you love old people who just live, and I, I say because the older folks seem to have this confidence, but it's not limited to them, but who just live with this absolute confidence that, that God is with them and that God loves them and God is going to bless them and protect them, and when they die, they're going to go be with him. Do you know that? Remember, do you remember what Simeon said when he saw Jesus? Now may your servant depart in peace. He's, he's, it's, Lord, I'm ready to go home. Take me home. I'm ready to die. Death has no fear for him. 
Is that true for you? Are you ready to die? We're going to, right? If you don't believe it, just go to the cemetery. You know that's true. Are you ready for that day? If you're not, you can be. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. Today, today is a day of salvation. You can confess your sin today. You can call it upon this Jesus today. He can be the light in your darkness today. That's the beauty of this message. That's the beauty of what Christ has come to do. But then the other application is, as you believe in Jesus, then let's live the gospel life, which is a life of waiting. It's a life of waiting. Someone asked me just this past week as a pastor. He said, you know, you look at the world, particularly our country. You see all the, it just seems, everything seems to be breaking down. How do you, what do you tell your people in that? That was a good question. I said, well, I think the most helpful thing to tell people is that do not be surprised when the world turns its back on God and, its, and the Savior, um, things are going to fall apart. Don't be surprised. So it, but, but let's remember, so let's remember that this isn't the way it ends. We're, we live in this world with this expectation. We're aware of what's going on. We're awake to it. We, we know why it's happening. But we, are, we live a life anchored by divine promises and assured by divine revelation. This isn't how it ends. God has given us a promise. I um, saw a movie recently, and I, I, don't, I don't usually use movies as illustrations because I'm going to spoil it for you. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and spoil this one for you because I, I just love how it made the point. <clears throat> I think a sermon is more important than a movie anyhow. So, um, The movie was Interstellar. Great movie. You say, oh, shoot, I want to see that movie. You can still go see it. Here's the thing that caught me. It, it's a profoundly humanist movie. Profoundly humanist movie. And yet, humanists can't escape uh, gospel themes. And so the, the theme is that this, the, world is, the world is falling apart. It's decaying. It's doomed. People are, are doomed to die here. And so, they, and so they need to go find another world to live on. And so they send this man and, uh, to go find another, another world so that the world can be saved, humanity can be saved. Well, he leaves behind a 10-year-old daughter. And um, promises her that he'll come back, but he's off in a vast space and gets caught up in things that didn't expect to happen and black holes and time gets all twisted around. And so um, he doesn't make it back. But, and here's where the spoiler is, but it's so good. <laughs> At the end of the movie, he's reunited with his daughter. He's, because of the time issues, right? He didn't get old, she did. So he's a... He's a Slightly older, but not much. She's an old, old woman. And she's in her deathbed. And she said, I knew you'd come back. And he said, how did you know? This Bob brought me to tears. You know what she said? Because my daddy made me a promise. And I thought that is exactly how Christians ought to live. How do you know that this isn't just high in the sky. How do you know? Look at the evidence. Is there, I mean, people die all the time, and there's tragedies that God's people experience, and things that are profoundly wrong, not the way they're supposed to be, and evil seems to be on the rise. All the evidence would seem to suggest that we've been left behind. So how are you going to live a life with absolute confidence, absolute conviction, unshakable joy, genuine peace, Well, you live like Simeon. 
My father told me. Jesus told me he's coming back. And not a single promise of my God falls to the ground. Not ever. If he told me he's coming back, he is coming back. He's coming back, and it's going to be made right. And it doesn't matter how wrong it looks now. It doesn't matter that I cannot penetrate the mystery of the mess that I kind of find myself in today. It does not matter. Jesus Christ is coming back, and, and this suffering is real. And it, but even he has, uh, has ordained it. He tells me it's true. And that this somehow works out for everlasting glory and for my good. And I'm going to believe it because he said it. And friends, for those who live that lifestyle, who live with that waiting expectancy, your waiting is going to be answered by an appearing, by a divine appointment. There is a day set when Jesus Christ is going to come back on the clouds of heaven, and your eyes will see him. And brother and sister, I hope that that day you want to rush and embrace him, that you want to rush and take him in his arms because he is your salvation. And if you know that's true, then you can, like Simeon, say, Lord, I'm really, I'm really ready to die. Let your servant depart in peace. And they can lay me in that grave, in that cemetery with all the others there who are waiting, and I'll wait as long as it takes because I know, I know one day he's coming back. My waiting is going to be answered. Friends, that's how to live in faith. That's how to live in joy. It's how to live in peace. It's how to live for the glory of God. May God grant as we close this year out and step into 2015 that we live like that, with that God-honoring expectation and hope. May God grant it. Amen. Well, Father in heaven, Lord, you know our lives. You know our, you know our doubts and fears. You know the unbelief that clings to us. God, I want to live like Simeon. where I do not seek my life and the things of this world. The gifts are good and thank you for them, but they're not life. Well, Father, I'm going to seek my life in Jesus. But we need your help. Thank you that you're willing to give it. I thank you that you've given us a promise as an anchor for our soul. You give us the revelation of your word and your Holy Spirit's testimony so that we can be assured that it's true. And we can live the few short years that we have here with this expectancy. And one day, Lord, it will be rewarded as we see Jesus face to face. Father, help us to live like godly old Simeon and to have the joy that he knew when we see Jesus face to face. We pray in his name, amen.